This is the Living Vertizano podcast, brought to you by The Church at Riverstone, a fellowship of The Church of the Nazarene in Madera, California. Our episode today looks at Romans 1, 8 through 17, which communicates Paul's prayers, plans, and point of writing the letter. Together, we discuss a variety of themes that emerge in the prayer and thanksgiving of Paul's letter to the Romans. Hi, everybody. I'm Nick. I'm Natasha. I'm Brittany. I'm Derek. And we are the Living Vertizontal Podcast with you this week as we continue our conversation uh, on Romans. Um, as a quick reminder, last week uh, is actually when we started Romans proper. Uh, I know we've been, uh, this is our fourth week in in this conversation, in this series, but we've only been in Romans for, this will be the second week. Before that, we were in Acts, kind of st- setting the stage for uh, who Paul is. Um, and so last week we looked at Romans chapter one, verses one to seven, which functions as Paul's greeting to the churches of Rome. And from this passage, we discussed our identity as slaves for Christ. Uh, this week we are moving into the, uh, kind of the second chunk of chapter one, which is verses eight through 17. And within these verses, we see Paul's um, communication of of, uh, prayers, plans, and the point for writing this letter. Um, I believe we have Derek reading for us today. So Derek, would you read Romans chapter 1, verses 8 through 17? First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is being reported all over the world. God, whom I serve in my spirit in preaching the gospel of his Son, is my witness how constantly I remember you in my prayers at all times. And I pray that now, at last, by God's will, the way may be opened for me to come to you. I long to see you so that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to make you strong. That is, that you and I may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. I do not want you to be unaware brothers and sisters, that I have planned many times to come to you, but have been prevented from doing so until now, in order that I might have a harvest among you, just as I have had among the other Gentiles. I am obligated both to Greeks and non-Greeks, both to the wise and the foolish. That is why I am eager to preach the gospel also to you who are in Rome, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Thank you for reading that for us, Derek. Um, Before we get into a conversation um, about specifically what we see in this passage, I think there are some um, important maybe context pieces uh, that would be good for us to address. First, uh, from just a context of like the letter, um, in ancient letters, the first sentence that followed uh, the salutation, which is the seven verses that we addressed last week, would typically be a, a, a religious statement in nature. Usually it would be like a prayer of some sort to a God, um, 
for like the physical well-being of the recipient of the letter. We see Paul following that structure in a sense, um, but instead of praying for the well-being of the recipients, he is praying a, really a prayer of thanksgiving for the recipients. Um, and then beyond that, usually this part of the letter would also um, like introduce or anticipate some of the, the key themes that the rest of the letter is going to address. And so within these verses as well, from verse 8 to verse 17, we'll see him do the, offer up this thanksgiving, this prayer, and then move into this conversation of introing or alluding to the, the key themes that we're going to see addressed later on in the remaining chapters of this letter. The other context piece that I think would be important for us to address is for the cultural context of what's going on in Rome, uh, like just before Paul has written this letter. And um, one really important piece is that um, in AD 49, Emperor Claudius actually issues an edict that expels the Jewish people from Rome. So that includes even those Jews who are Christian, which essentially in, in an instant um, just fractures the, the church in Rome. Um, and with this, you, you know, you still have the, the, the Roman Christians, the Gentile Christians who remain, who are permitted to remain and they continue to, um, remain dedicated and committed to Christ and, and working out on a daily basis, what it looks like to follow Jesus and to walk in obedience. And, they begin to establish rhythms and routines and understandings and beliefs associated with this. And uh, simultaneous to that, you have the, the Jewish Christians who had lived in Rome that were kicked out of Rome, living other places, also kind of developing in their faith walk and faith understanding. Because remember, they, they don't have the New Testament like we have it. Like it is being actively written during this time, they are working it out. Paul is writing it out. Um, subsequently, um, the schools of the disciples are documenting the the gospels, and so each of these like groups of Christians are are really day in and day out working to figure out what it means to be a Christian. And when they're doing that separate from each other. Obviously, uh, like our, our life and our, our history speaks into the things that we do. And so eventually when the Jewish Christians do come back, because they are permitted to return, you, you have differences that begin to emerge in the people. And specifically, I mean, those differences are seen elsewhere in Acts and, and in some of the other letters, but um, it, it, it's a result of like that the tension that exists between like the, the old guard and the new understanding the the new covenant, like the Jews, the Jewish Christians holding on to some of those, those works, some of those practices, some of those rituals and or traditions that they identify as like critical to following God as critical to being obedient to God. Whereas the, the Gentile Christians or the Roman Christians are like, None of that is, but we're not under any of that anymore in Christ. And so 
We don't have to be circumcised. We don't have to eat specific things or avoid certain things or uh, really live under the oppression of that law because we have found freedom in Christ. So it's in response to this tension, this division that exists between um, the Gentile slash Roman Christians and the Jewish Christians that Paul is is writing this letter and, and what he's going to be addressing as we move forward. Um, and so with those context pieces in mind, uh, let's begin to work through this next piece of, of the letter. And so what are you guys seeing? What's standing out? What are your thoughts as we dive in? Well, one of the first things I feel like as right as Derek jumped into verse eight, um, it reads first, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is being reported all over the world. And when I read that, I just like my heart jumps and I'm like, man, I want my faith to be like that. I want to have a faith that's reported all over the world. And when we look at our world today in this, this modern age, we see, you know, there are certain areas of the world where the faith and, and the dedication and the growth of the church is being reported all over the world. We hear these incredible stories of miraculous healings, and we see um, incredible stories of deliverance, and we see exploding numbers um, where the church is just growing like crazy um, in certain parts of the world, particularly in areas where there's really great persecution and oppression. And um, I guess that's very similar to what is being experienced in Rome here that Paul is writing to, because Rome is obviously not a, a very um, welcoming and accepting place for these early Christians. I mean, you have these the, the Jews, the Pharisees that are still attacking. And, and then you have the Romans who are, are kind of sick of all of this, um, conflict that's going on. And so they're trying to get them out. And so there's, there's a lot of conflict and persecution here in, in the center in Rome. And so I guess, yeah, as I read this, I just think, man, Jesus, what, what do, what do I need to do? How, how do I better have a faith that is worthy of being reported all over the world. How do we, as the American church, what does that look like for us to have a faith that should be reported all over the world? It's worth reporting. And maybe Paul goes on to answer this in verse nine, where he says, God, whom I serve. And so as Paul is serving God, as the Christians of, of Rome are serving God, their faith is worth reporting all over the world. And I think we've talked several times over the course of many episodes about the distractions um, that we have present. And, you know, in these areas of the world where we see this extreme persecution, um, their focus really is, I mean, they are sold out servants of Christ. They know that when they make this decision to follow Christ, like they're giving up everything. Most of them are walking away from families. They're, they're basically no longer allowed to hold certain positions or hold land or all sorts of things. I mean, it's, it has catastrophic effects on, on their livelihood. And yet they're still willing to serve God with their whole self, with everything. And here, you know, where we have the comforts, um, it's a lot easier for us to be divided. And so maybe 
maybe that's where it starts is with us revisiting that place of being full servants unto God. Yeah, it's already the second time in this in this short portion of Romans that we've been through where Paul addresses the fact that he is a slave to Christ, that he is doing this because of that encounter that he had. He he gave up things. Being a Pharisee, he gave up so much to say, I'm willing to follow you. And it's as if he's he's kind of like almost in a sense, like reversing where he was at last week, um, because he seems to take this this role of, of of a leader in in addressing like this this prayer of thanksgiving, and flips it and then says, "But I'm a servant of God," and so like he he starts with, "I'm a servant and I'm an apostle," and now it's he's he's following out that apostleship by telling them what he has been doing, spending time praying for them. And doesn't doesn't forget to address the fact that he is still a slave of Christ, and, and I feel like Paul is not asking them to go anywhere he hasn't been. He was someone who was not even trying to divide; he was trying to destroy, and he's trying to bring two groups that kind of view each other in a similar manner to the way that he was viewing. You know, there is this tension that exists between them. He's trying to reconcile that through God working through him in the same way that he had reconciliation in his encounter. So as Paul continues, he talks about wanting, having, praying for the opportunity to go and see and visit the Romans. And, you know, he knows about this tension and he's heard about their faith. And I think it's very interesting that he is desiring to be there um, there's a lot of persecution going on there. There's there's a whole lot going on, but their faith is kind of shining through, even in this in the midst of this discourse. Um, and I, I have to think, like in in my life, am I somebody who is going and wanting to reconcile? Is that like if I see issues, am I running from them and saying, "Oh, God's going to take care of that," or am I running towards them and helping Jesus reconcile those things? So, like structurally from the letter, we have this prayer part that we've been talking about um, where Paul is offering up thanksgiving for who they are, for how they've behaved, um, and also, like, I guess reveals or exposes how he has been praying for the opportunity to come and visit them, like this desire to come to them, as you were pointing out, Brittany, and um, as we, as we move on, that same theme continues. And if we think back to like the structural conversation of the letter, you know, you have this first sentence following the salutation being a prayer. And then after that you have, you move into this like exposing or revelation or introduction to the themes that are going to be addressed or the, the ideas that are going to go forward. And I think in the next few verses, uh, Paul I guess still partially praying, but moving out of prayer and into like the intention reveals this desire that he has to be in Rome. And he begins to open up as to like why, why he wants to come. And he says he wants to come 
so that he may impart to them some spiritual gift to make them strong. Leaves it super ambiguous, which I'm sitting here left wondering, like, what is that spiritual gift that he wants to impart? But then in the NIV, you have this hyphen. I don't, Brittany, you have the NLT. Is there a hyphen there? It no just, hyphen. is it a comma? Nothing. Just keeps, keep, keep just talking. Okay. Um, so in the NIV, there's this hyphen that moves into verse 12, which would make you think that maybe it's associated with what the spiritual gift, what this some spiritual gift is. But it says that um, you and I may be mutually encouraged, encouraged by each other's faith. And so when I read that, I continue to see this theme, Derek, that you pointed out that you like reminded us of from last week about how like, yes, Paul is called to be an apostle, but he is a slave. He is a servant to Christ first and foremost. And so as he recognizes his place and his responsibility to uh, address this um, division that exists. He recognizes that as he comes to them, while he may have something to teach them, he also comes in expectation that they have something to teach him. Like he's not coming with this understanding that he is going to be the savior of the Roman church. The Roman church already has a savior and his name is Jesus. And What's left is for those who identify as slaves of Jesus to come together and work together to figure out what it looks like to follow him. And so Paul, even though he's going to be, and we will see it in in the remaining chapters of Romans, even though Paul is going to be addressing and kind of pointing things out and, and challenging them and teaching them, he expects that they will also be teaching him. And I think that probably especially with the fact that Paul is coming into a people that he does not know, a people that have no responsibility or expectation of having to listen to Paul, really. Like, like Paul is not the reason why Rome has a church, right? And so there, there's no... like relationship like that that exists between Ro- R- the people of Rome or the, the people of the churches of Rome and Paul. And so that's why it would be important for for Paul to come in humbly in recognition that like we we are in this together. And, and I'm here to walk through it with you, not to like lord it over you in the midst of all of this. So as we were talking about this passage with the kids on Sunday, um, we, we talked a lot about kind of what, what begins to unfold. You see it a little bit in 11, but by the time you get to 13, he, Paul kind of states it explicitly. He says, I don't want you to be unaware brothers and sisters that I have planned many times to come to you, but have been prevented from doing so until now in order that I might have a harvest among you, just as I have had among the other Gentiles. And so knowing Paul, we, we can assume that Paul is probably like his plans that he makes are not probably his own plans. Like his plans are plans that, that, that God has really laid this burden on his heart for, for his, 
for these plans that he's talking about, where he wants to visit Rome and he wants to be encouraged by them. We know that also he's looking to um, potentially travel on in a missionary journey to Spain. And so he, he has all of these plans in place. And so with the kids, we were kind of discussing about, you know, the plans that we make. And, and a lot of times we make them in collaboration with Jesus, but because we can't see the full picture of what it is that he wants to accomplish, his plans often do not fit exactly with our expectations. And so, um, you know, as we're going through life, um, we, we become oftentimes really easily discouraged or disappointed when God's timing doesn't seem to fit with the timing we expected, because after all, these were God's plans, right? And we know, um, I guess, spoiler alert, but we know that, that Paul, when, when he finally does get to Rome, it's not going to be under these like glorious pretenses that I'm sure he imagined at this time. Like he's taken as a prisoner and he's going to be there for a couple of years under house arrest. And then he's going to die as a martyr. And he never makes it onto Spain. He never gets to accomplish the things that he felt burdened that God was leading him into. And so as he writes this piece here, you know, it led us into this conversation of, okay, well, what plans do we have for our life? What, what plans do we, like, have we prayerfully made for our life? And are we willing to hold those plans with open hands and allow God to adjust them and make changes to them and recognizing and, and trust him enough, I guess, recognizing that any changes he makes to our plans are going to be for the greater good. We know that in this timing, like where Paul's like, well, I wanted to do this a long time, but I, I didn't really get a chance to, we know he's, he's still gonna, like, he's going to be in prison in Rome and he's not going to have as much freedom. Like people will come to him, but he's not going to have as much freedom as I'm sure he imagined here. But yet while he's sitting in under house arrest, he's writing his letters to the Ephesians, to the Philippians, to the Colossians. And, and so we get a large portion of the New Testament while Paul is stuck in prison. And I'm sure that's not the impact that he had in mind, but look at the, I guess, breadth of what that time and what that ministry has actually been able to impact and affect. And so God took these plans he had and he blessed them and he made them better than Paul could have ever conceived of in his lifetime. And so when we hold our plans, our God-given plans with open hands and allow God to tweak them and change them and, and, and adjust them for his good, for the good of his kingdom, then he turns those plans into things we may never get to see, but they impact far greater for the kingdom than we could have ever conceived. As you were saying that, I couldn't help but think, um, like Paul, I guess it was more just an imaginary, like imagination thinking about Paul, thinking about like him and his relationship with Jesus and trying to take direction from Jesus. Like, okay, I am on this missionary journey. I'm going here, here and here. Um, and then this desire being planted in his heart to go to Rome and to continue on into Spain. Like I, I would, I, I don't know the guy personally. I have a lot of letters of his that I've read. Um, and it seems like those were probably not just these um, ideas that he planted in his own mind, right? That, that they were probably God given, like you said, Natasha. And 
and and knowing that, I guess the other side uh, in knowing Paul's uh, excitement and Paul how he just goes head headlong into things and and is committed and dedicated and like zealous. Um, I guess the the image that came into my mind is like he's praying. Jesus says Rome, and Paul's like done and he's like this is how this is what it's going to be like this this is what i can expect this is why i'm going to rome like having these thoughts like kind of he gets the idea from god from jesus and then maybe brings his own expectations into the conversation and i think about my own life and maybe that's why that thought came to mind i think about my own life and regularly i'll find myself praying and in conversation with jesus and then have an idea come to me having a uh, uh vision of something come to me. And then I begin to read into it, my own expectation of how that's going to come about or what it's going to look like for that to materialize and develop. And I allow my expectations to then take the lead on the initial thought that Jesus gave me. The real challenge for me, and I guess for us as followers of Jesus, is figuring out how we can be more like Paul, like you talked about, Natasha. How can we patiently hold our understanding of what and where God is leading us without running ahead into our own understanding and our own expectation of how that plan should come about. I feel like this passage is is an encouragement, like that this is accomplishing what Paul couldn't accomplish with his feet, because he is encouraging a people who are divided to be united. And he's saying, that is why, verse 15, that is why I am so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are in Rome. He's going to be the one that gets to preach the gospel in Rome. If he can help the people to get to where they need to be to preach the gospel in the way that God intends it, if we're not united as a body, we can't accomplish that goal. And so Paul, while not there in body, is being used by God to pen something, to bring people to a place of focus, to focus back on Jesus, not onto the things that divide them. It's easy for us to focus on our differences. But in this, Paul is calling them to focus on the commonality, Jesus, the gospel, the, the same gospel that he was given following his encounter on the road to Damascus. And so he's like, you know, I'm obligated to the Greeks and non-Greeks, to the wise and the foolish. You, you got to understand it's not about how much of a Jew you are or how much of a Gentile you are or how tied you are to the law or how, you know, you recognize that Jesus came to fulfill that and we're under a new covenant so he, he's kind of trying, I mean, for me, he feels, it feels like he's trying to suppress all that they've brought in, all this, like these presumptive thoughts that they've brought into this journey. It's like, hey, let's push that to the side because Jesus is where we're going. And then he follows it up with, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Like I recognize all that you're going through, but I know the one that I had the encounter with on the road to Damascus. And all of these things don't matter to me. I know that my end is not going to be the way that I would hope. 
I know that it, just like a, just like it talk, we talked about in Acts where he talks about, I, I will show you how much you, you, you will suffer for my name or how much he will suffer for my name. Like we're seeing that, we're, we're getting ready to see that lived out. And so he he doesn't care about those things. This is my my this is the task that I've been given to proclaim the gospel. And I'm not ashamed of what may come. I'm not ashamed of what people may think of me. Uh, here I am a Jew trying to, you know, bridge the gap between Jews and Gentiles. He's acting for like a bridge for for those who are divided by this chasm of of life differences. And, and he is acting in that while he may not be there physically, he is still being able to accomplish what God's asked him to. One of the words um, in this set of verses that really stuck out to me um, is the word obligated in verse 14. And um, I think it stuck out to me because first I read it, and I was like, well, he's obligated because, like, Jesus saved him. So, like, he's he's obligated to Jesus to do it. But then, as I thought more about that, like, that's that's in that seems inconsistent with what we talked about last week. It seems consistent with this statement of a slave for Christ, but it seems inconsistent with the recognition that we said Paul had a choice to make. And he chose to like submit himself to Jesus. So it's like a chosen slavery, a chosen servitude, a, a chosen submission. So when it's a chosen thing, you can't really use the word obligated. So then I was like, man, maybe, okay, that's maybe he's not obligated to Jesus. And then I begin to see like his obligation. Because what follows that statement is, I am obligated both to Greeks and non-Greeks. Like, I am obligated to people. Right. And I, I thought about that, and I, I came to the realization that he's saying, like, because Jesus so radically transformed me and saved me, because of the experience that I had, and because of the life that I now live... I can't do anything else. If I am to live a life of love towards God and of love towards other people, like perfect love towards God and towards other individuals, then he is obligated, like actually obligated to his fellow man to allow them to see Jesus and what Jesus is capable of and who he is and, and what he did for him. So the obligation isn't to God. The, the love is to God. And out of his love for God comes his obligation or his love for his fellow man. He sees and understands that his encounter has resulted in his salvation. And like what kind of person would he be if he had that encounter and kept it to himself? But Paul says, no, like I, I can't do that. I am obligated to give them the same opportunity that I had to see 
Jesus. Uh, Sunday night with, with the teens, we were sitting around and we were talking. We were actually working through Acts um, as a part of what we've been doing. And um, we're, we're at, I think we're in chapter 7. It's part of Stephen's testimony before he is executed, which is super interesting, actually, the fact that Paul was standing there at his execution. Um, but he's giving this testimony. So I guess I would imagine Paul was probably there listening to his testimony. And Stephen talks about how, like, as he traces the story of God through the people of Israel, he identifies the tabernacle as an important place, as this place where the presence of God dwelt, and then um, brings in Isaiah and some prophecies that he had in regards to where God's home would be. And ultimately, like what we talked about as the youth was this idea that like we are the new tabernacle. And and the tabernacle was the place where the people of Israel knew the presence of God was, and they knew that they could go there and experience him. And so when I think about that, and I and I think about this idea of Paul's obligation, like he is now a tabernacle of Christ. He is a place where people can come and can experience Jesus just like he got to experience as he walks obediently to him. And so he is obligated as the tabernacle to be a place of encounter. And he can't be a place of encounter if he goes and hides off on his own. He can't be a place of encounter if he decides, eh, I'm not much of a people person, so I'm going to go stay in the hills. His obligation propels his mission to the world because he is a tabernacle of Christ. And I know we're maybe stepping outside a little bit from this passage and and bringing this part of Acts into it, but I just can't help but see maybe it was Stephen's very testimony that was doing a a prevenient work, a work that went before in Paul's life that now it is manifesting itself as he proclaims, I am obligated. I had an encounter with Jesus and, and I'm not obligated to Jesus. Like he didn't force me to do this, but I can't help but do this because, because man, I want you to experience Jesus too. And so I'm going to, I'm going to pour myself out. And, and Paul does say, you know, I become all things to all people so that some might be saved. Like this is that obligation that he has, that he is living out and, and that he is, um, that he is mentioning here at the outset of Romans. And I guess as I think about what Paul is talking about and I allow it to to speak to me, to speak to us, the question that I come to is, in what ways am I living into my obligation to those around me? In what ways are you living into your obligation uh, for those around you as we recognize that we are that new tabernacle, that we are that place where people can and should expect to encounter Jesus. 
In what ways are we living into that obligation? And as I think about the working out of our love for God by means of loving others, this obligation that we have with the other themes that we have discussed today, I come to realize that it is because of this obligation that we have a faith worthy of being spoken of throughout the world. It is because of this obligation that we find ourselves content with setting aside our expectations of how things should go so that God's plans can shine through. It is from this obligation that we can set aside our differences and unite on mission for Jesus. As you journey with us, we recommend purchasing Midweek Meditations, A Journey Through Romans, which is available for purchase on Amazon. Also, be sure to follow the Living Vertizano podcast to stay current on all our new releases. To learn more about The Church at Riverstone, visit us at thechurchatriverstone.org.